Well, I thought that was the centre of the universe. The nearest town, as I say in the book, is Broome. That's all I knew until I was about, I don't know, 15, I suppose. It's about three, three and a half thousand people. We are on the coast. We've got a jetty, but it's marsh and it's like muddy water and stuff. So the, the Fitzroy River comes out not far from where Derby is and it flows out into the ocean. So we've got lots of mangroves and lots of crabs. So very much an outdoorsy type of town. I was a, a book nerd, a comic nerd in particular, I still am. So while everyone else went fishing and played sports, I was reading and mostly reading comics. Oh, and I was a baker. I still am a baker. I bake cakes a lot. <laughs> <laughs> You're making me hungry. From Schwartz Media, I'm Ange McCormack. This is 7am. In recent days, there's been speculation over whether the government should abandon the referendum and instead legislate the voice through parliament. Campaigners say legislating the voice, rather than enshrining it in the constitution, would weaken the voice and risk repeating mistakes of the past. Today, business leader and author of the new book, On the Voice to Parliament, Nyikina man Charles Prowse, on cutting through the noise of the campaign and why he still believes in the power of a referendum. It's Tuesday, July 25. Charles, can you tell me a bit about the kind of work you've done? You said that you've always been a bookish kind of kid and an adult, I suppose, too. Uh, why were you approached to write on The Voice? What kind of work has led you here? It started when I was a kid through my family. My aunts and uncles have always worked in Indigenous affairs. So when my aunts and uncles finished work and were at Nana's, they would come home and there would be cups of tea and there'd just be talks of Indigenous affairs and politics. When I, you know, went to university, I didn't know where else to go and uh, I was just landed in these government jobs. And then just through those government jobs, I worked in Perth and then Victoria. I went back to the Derby to the work in the Kimberley Land Council and I really got into caring for country programs and sea ranger programs. Then I went to Sydney and I've been here almost 20 years now. Again, Indigenous Affairs, always in Indigenous Affairs, just in different environments. And then I was approached around this book. Actually, to be honest, I didn't know what I was signing myself up for. I said yes and then they said, they said, thanks for agreeing, Charles. And I thought, oh, <laughs> I thought I was just going to introduce you to someone, but apparently I've signed up for a book. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you started writing the book, you've been uh, approached to do it. Where did you start thinking about and collecting your thoughts about your position on The Voice and thinking about all the reasons why you would vote yes? Well, I'd actually done some work with the Recognise campaign, so I was familiar with the general campaign in terms of recognition. I knew about the Carmelenta Report, which is a comprehensive report on what a voice of parliament model could look like. It was backed by a lot of research and consultation done by Tom Carmen and Marcia Langton. So we reported to government last October. The government released our report, I think it was on the 9th of January. And what we've done now is to work with a whole range of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander experts and, 
I knew who the big players were in terms of, you know, Warren and Jacinta. Former Labor boss Warren Mundine is president of the No campaign, today establishing a committee with Northern Territory Senator Jacinta Price, Indigenous business owners and former MPs. They've launched a new slogan. I basically kind of gathered myself and I thought, okay, what's in front of me? What do I know? What have I seen? And I list those things in the book. And I knew I couldn't tackle everything. I know how referendums work. So I knew, you know, the whole thing around smokes and mirrors. They haven't wanted to explain what the voice is. But how can people know what they're voting for if there's none of the detail on what it might be? particular parts of Australia, you've got no way of knowing what a future parliament, what powers and functions it will give to this voice. It is that not representations in... How do you know that affected the You're making it up as you go, Chris. No, you're making it up as you go because you cannot... I wanted to cut through the noise and I wanted to give some real focus to a truth from my perspective. And I thought, well, I could write stuff, but, you know, there's a big community voice out there and I thought maybe I could ask other people. <laughs> to be honest, I thought, oh, maybe someone else could help me share the load. I don't have to write so much. <laughs> but um, I thought of my mum, you know. I, I just thought of my mum because, I, as I say, we've been in Indigenous affairs, my aunt, my mum, and we're from the Kimberley. We're remote. This is going to affect us. So that's where we got to. And I asked my mother and she said yes. I want to ask a, a bit more about your mum because at the beginning of the year you write that she was feeling kind of uncertain about the voice to Parliament. Can you talk to me a bit more about the conversation that you had with her and what you learnt from that? As I say in the book, we do have lots of chats and there was one chat, she said, oh, Charles, you know, it's all about these people in Canberra. And I, and I was just like, Mum, what are you saying? And she's, it's just like, it's just these Canberra people deciding for us. I said, Mum, you sound like what they're saying on the TV. I said, have you looked into it? Because, oh no, I've just, this is what I see on TV, Charles. And I said, well, okay, so why don't you look at the report? I said, this is what's bothering me, Mama. People are just spouting the things that they hear on TV and what they're hearing on TV is not the full story. You know, I ring her up the next week and she surprises me. She says, Charles, I read that report. You know, it's pretty good, you know. I get it now, it's true. And I'm like, oh, oh. She goes, oh yeah, Charles, I read the report. I looked on ABC iView. I was watching it on Q&A. I was like listening. I was like, oh. And I hadn't read the report in full. I thought, oh my God, my mother has read the report and I haven't. So it forced me to read the report. <laughs> <laughs> so so what, what that demonstrated to me was that mum is in remote Australia. She is like everybody else. She's watching the TV. She's an Aussie person just getting on with her life. And so she didn't actively go into finding the information until I kind of just asked her and challenged her a bit. And so it's not that she was against it. It was about what is being told out there? What What is the information people are getting and how are they responding? And I, I thought, well, we've got to get out there and challenge what's being put out there because people are genuine, they are interested, or at least they're, they're willing, but there can be such a flood of information, they don't even know where to look sometimes. I had to look for quite a few of the um, pieces of this information. 
So, Charles, your, your family and conversations with your community have, have influenced your opinion and your position, but your work has always focused on Indigenous affairs, as, as you've said, throughout your life. And as a younger man, you worked at ATSIC in the Kimberley. Can you tell me a bit about your work there and how your experience there shaped your views on The Voice? So ATSIC was the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Commission. ATSIC emerges from the vision of Indigenous self-determination and self-management. Basically, they received funding to help community programs around community infrastructure and community employment programs, along, along with community social programs. The vision's already become the reality of almost 800 elected Aboriginal regional councillors and commissioners. It gave us a regional voice. Determining priorities and developing their own programs. All over Australia. Aboriginal and it gave us a national voice. So when a community person comes in through the door and they're not sure what question to ask, just like, who do I ask? What do I ask? I just need some money for this. Can you help me fill out that form? You know, the English language is a second language for some. That human interaction, the friendliness, the ability to answer a question without it being confusing, that's that's what it taught me. It taught me community. And in the end, though, ATSIC was abolished by the Howard government. I'm wondering if you can explain what happened there and how ATSIC fell apart. There were two stories. There were stories of mismanagement of funds and there were stories of inappropriate behaviour. I found out, actually, there has been a review, but the review was tabled what normally would happen with a review is a restructure, recommendations and a restructure. And none of that happened. It was simply done away with and they were saying ATSIC was a failed experiment and by association Aboriginal people don't know how to manage their funds. That is a lie. And I think you don't do away the Department of Environment and Department of Parks and well, you know all the other federal agencies if there's been a little bit of mismanagement of funds or inappropriate behaviour. There are methods in the governance process, for some reason, they didn't seem to apply for us. We lost our voice. My voice was taken away, my aunts, my cousins, every voice was taken away. So when people say, oh, you should just legislate this voice as a, as a, a test and see how it works. Well, that's exactly what happened with ATSIC. And then the government of the day tarred us all with the same brush and said, oh no, it's a failed experiment, we'll do away with it. So there's no need to legislate this voice. We've already tried. If we put it in the constitution, the voice will always be there. It will mean that we'll have to be forced with a restructure if something goes awry, but we'll always have it. So you're saying that the approach of legislating the voice if we took that approach, it would just be a matter of making the same mistake twice. And having it enshrined in the Constitution is the key part here to protect it from what happened previously. Exactly. I mean, the first principle is to put in the Constitution and protect it. Leave it there, fix it, but don't take it away. We'll be back after the break. In Australia, one whistleblower is in prison, another soon faces trial, 
But prosecuting people for telling the truth is bad for press freedom and bad for our democracy. That's why we're calling on the Albanese government to stop this shameful coalition legacy. We're demanding they protect, not punish, whistleblowers in Australia. Join the campaign at droptheprosecutions.org.au. Experience the untold story of an asylum seeker in State Library Victoria's new photography exhibition, Searching for Sanctuary. Documented through the eyes of double Walkley Award winner Barat Ali Batur, he shares the journey of survival from Afghanistan to Australia and the unthinkable odds he overcame to find a new home. Presented with Rising. Open daily at State Library Victoria, slv.vic.gov.au. Charles, I want to talk about some of the arguments put forward by the No Camp, and because in, in your essay you talk through a lot of them, so I want to go through some of them. One of the arguments put forward is that the voice itself could be seen as racist. Peter Dutton has said that he thinks it will, quote, re-racialise Australia because it's elevating one group over the other, which could be divisive. You've thought about that argument. How do you grapple with it? Well, I think it's justice. When people say it's racist, I would like them to actually consider the position Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been in the past 230 years and tell us, you know, none of that was racist. Captain Cook and, you know, Governor Macquarie and Philip came across and we never had a treaty, we never had a discussion. All we're asking for now is something that should have happened 230 years ago. The Constitution ignored us deliberately for 67 years. Now, is that racist? Ask Adam Goods what racism is. Ask Stan Grant what racism is. Ask the boy who was shot in Yundamu or his parents around what racism is. Hold on. No, we know what racism is. We live it still. We're asking for justice. So to say to us that's racism, I feel there's two things with that. That's a dog whistle and it's also a gaslight. The other part to racism is is supposedly instilled some kind of fear. Well, what does that mean? Are you saying... You have fear that one race is, what, going to be better than you or is going to get more than you? And are you afraid that we're going to take your backyard? Well, Native Title tried that little campaign and that clearly was wrong. People were worried they were going to lose their hill's hoist in their backyard. That never happened. People were worried with Kathy Freeman flying the flag that it was going to be um, divisive. Keep going, Kathy. She's won gold for Australia. It never happened. Both flags was an important reminder of your pride in your heritage as an Aboriginal Australian. It was uniting. Any referendum or staged party line, this innocence, it somehow united our nation. Again, I don't understand the fear. So when people say it's racist, that's like a little grenade of fear thrown into the general public going, oh, this is racist, bang, everyone run the other way. You're going to lose something. I'm not sure what you're going to lose. And in fact, there's so much to gain. There's so much to gain of unity, of humanity, of like bringing us together. You mentioned unity there. And I want to know beyond the practical reasons for supporting The Voice, what would it mean to you on a symbolic or emotional level if we did vote yes? What kind of moment do you think that could spark for us as a nation? Um, I can tell you. For those who remember or were around during the apology, have a think about what that meant. 
I was on the lawns of Parliament House. Uh, you know, we'd gotten in a car with my friends from work. It's time to reconcile. It's time to recognise the injustices of the past. It's time to say sorry. Kevin Rudd was about to apologise. We didn't know what the words he was going to say. To the stolen generations, I say the following. As Prime Minister of Australia, I am sorry. But when he said them, tears, streaming tears, hundreds, thousands of people on the, on the lawn, and this is just where I was, we were all in tears of joy, of sadness, of release. We were hugging adults, grown adults in their thousands in public in broad daylight just crying, right? And so sad and happy and hugging strangers, that's what it's going to feel like. And this moment of unity of like, you're Australian, I'm Australian, he's Australian, they're Australian, like, oh my God, I think we can do it. That's what I hope it will feel like. Charles, you've gone really deep thinking about the voice for this essay that you've written. You've read the report. You've had lots of these really deep conversations with your community. What advice do you have for other people who are only just now starting to think about how they're going to vote? I would think about what I've just spoken about. Think about what it can do, why we should do it, as opposed to why not. And if you really think about why not... Think about what is it that you're really, really afraid of? What are you afraid of losing? And let's talk about that. And then go and ask someone around, well, is this true? Will I lose this? But really, think about what we will gain. Think about this country. Think about not having to talk about the the deficit of Indigenous affairs. Let's move on as a country. Think about growing up as a nation in the world on the international stage, thinking about having Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander neighbours who are happy, you're happy, you know, it's a scar on our country's history, but it's a scar that's been healed and we can move on as a healthy modern nation in the world. You know, there's just so much we can do together, but don't think about what we can't do and why we can't do it. That's all negative. You know, look at the glass half full rather than the glass half empty. Charles, thank you so much for talking with me today. Uh, My pleasure. Why can't an Australian whiskey win world's best? Why not use local instead of imported malts to make Australian whiskey? Archie Rose Distilling Co.'s award-winning single malt whiskey and rye malt whiskey is 100% Australian made and available at all good retailers. Archie Rose. Question everything. Also in the news today, Treasurer Jim Chalmers has revealed the estimated budget surplus will grow to a total of over $20 billion thanks to increasing commodity prices and tax receipts. Despite the surplus having grown since he handed down the budget in May, Chalmers rejected calls for spending any of it on more cost-of-living relief, instead saying the government was focused on delivering what has already been promised. And Stan Grant has announced he will permanently leave the ABC television show Q&A. Grant temporarily stepped away from hosting the program over racist abuse and a belief he was not adequately defended by ABC management. 
RN Breakfast host Patricia Carvelis has been announced as the new host, at least until the end of the year. I'm Ange McCormack. This is 7am. We'll be back tomorrow.